Okay, so for today's sermon, everything just doesn't want to stay on. Let no one deceive you in any way. So, how many of you have been following along in 2 Thessalonians? You know where we've gotten to then, don't you? I've been trying to avoid it for a while. Uh, what's the subject of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12? Anybody? Some of it is that, isn't it? Yeah, some of it is about that, but it's about the, the, the day of the Lord or the parousia, right? When is Jesus coming back, and what's it going to look like? And so when we get into end times things... Things get a little bit complicated at times, don't they? Everybody has an idea about how it's going to end up. I wish I could just go around in the whole congregation here and say, well, let me ask you this, and this is not a rhetorical question. How many of you think you have a good idea of how the end times are all going to play out? Some of you? Some of you? Yeah, a little bit? All right. And, and I would go through and ask you, well, why, why do you believe that? But we'll get to that. So let me read you a little bit. I'm going I'm to give you the whole first 12 verses, and then you'll kind of see in more context what it is we're talking about. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry, <clears throat> turn in your Bibles. I never say that because most of the time we put the passage up here. Um, Hopefully you haven't forgotten that that is still very important because I am building a foundation on the Word of God. And so I read the Word of God. I print out the Word of God. You You don't see my Bible up here most of the time. But I print out the Word of God in the ESV most of the time. But don't get lazy and just follow along. Actually turn to your with me in your Bible, the 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seemingly coming from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember when I was still with you that I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of the lawless is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawlessness, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus Christ will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming." 
the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There's a lot of things there, isn't there? So, <clears throat> is Paul changing the subject? This is kind of a weird thing. You know, every time I um, Sunday's over, uh, Monday I'm moving on. I'm moving on to the next sermon because I have to start preparing or, or I won't be ready. And so I was thinking back and you know what, I was putting some stuff together and I, I, maybe it's because I'm old too, but I could not remember anything about my sermon last time. <laughs> I had to go back and read. So I often I hear that, like they'll say that a lot, most of the statistics say the majority of people in your congregation will not remember your sermon by the next Sunday. Well, guess what? Neither does your pastor. <laughs> so I went back and looked, and I thought, oh, yeah, now I remember. And Paul was teaching about um, the difference between justice and grace and mercy, and how we didn't want justice, except we want justice for other people, but we want grace and mercy for ourselves. But how that then we had to have a delayed gratification, right? Will the hope of heaven and the avoidance of hell be enough of a motivator so that I can weather some of the trials of this life and it will still give me joy? And I read I think I read, or I was supposed to read, the passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, where it just says, hey, all these wonderful things, and you've got this inheritance that can never spoil or fade or perish, but for now, for the, a little while, you're going to have to encounter these trials, and they're going to be perfecting you as, as through fire. But find joy, for now rejoice in those things. So does that delayed gratification, does it give you enough motivation to deal with the trouble that's in this life? So I was thinking, well, it's not really changing the subject because what he's trying to say is, hey, if I'm asking you to have that sort of assurance, then, then you would probably be concerned if, hey, I'm not getting the payoff in the end, right? And so there were some things going on in, in, about... Did Jesus actually come back? And we just missed it. So we're going to talk about that. In the first three verses, and through actually just through 3a. And so <clears throat> part of this, and I'm going to, so I'm going to ask you, is Paul addressing that problem that, hey, there are a bunch of Christians in Thessalonica and I taught him, he says, I taught him about this, the next coming, that Jesus is going to come back. And I also taught him about, I guess, who this restrainer is and who the man of lawlessness is. He says, some of this you should know, but I'm hearing back that, that you're really concerned that, hey, the second coming happened and I missed it. So is Paul trying to use this particular passage to give them assurance and confidence that, hey, it didn't happen? Or is he giving us really important details for the last day? Both. It's both, right? It's both. He's saying, look, 
there's a reason why you can know that this has not happened. And the reason you can know is I'm going to reiterate some of the details that I've already given you so that you'll know when that happens. And so you can have confidence that you didn't miss out on the, on the day of the Lord. <clears throat> so, this sermon is going to have two different parts. Part of it is about eschatology. And part of it is, don't be deceived. Eschatology is, 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 a, is a funny thing. And then in the end, we're going to bring it together and say, don't be deceived about eschatology. And that's really what he's saying, isn't it? I mean, he, he, he's really talking about that. Uh, I told you certain things about how the thing is going to end up. Somebody else has told you something else, and apparently some of you were deceived by that. Why? We're going to talk about that. Why? You know, so we look at eschatology. How many of you, I don't want to sound too Christian-y, eschatology is the study of the end times. Okay? And people seem to get really wrapped up about it. Now, there are numbers of places in Scripture, right? How many of you have read the entire Bible and recognized all the different places where end times were talked about? How about some of the times? Where would you go first? Book of Revelation, right? The Revelation. But you know what? Um, so there's some of it in Ezekiel. There's some in the other Old Testament passages. There's, there's a lot there in the last three or four chapters of Daniel that's talked about in 1 Corinthians, which we're going to read. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we've already, I've already preached about. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see it, and then in Revelation. Now, some of those are prophetic. You understand what prophetic is? Okay. In, in the language of the day, prophetic language was different than narrative. Okay, I'm just going to tell you something that's happening. Prophetic language has to be interpreted knowing that it's prophetic language. How many of you have read the book of Revelation and had a hard time understanding what all the symbols meant? And, and do you somehow believe that the devil is actually going to be a dragon? Or that Jesus is going to return on a horse with a sword sticking out of his mouth? Those are clearly symbols, aren't they? So if you don't understand prophetic language, you may have a hard time trying to understand exactly what's being said. Um, so, eschatology. Man, we all seem to want to know what's going to happen. And not only do I want to know, but I want to know down to the T, and I want to know the time frame of it as well. And then I get into Scripture, and I'm looking for it. Maybe I'm even honestly looking for just what's the truth. And, and frankly, I just can't figure it out. Or there are obvious different viewpoints by Christians who are very knowledgeable in Scripture and very astute at trying to understand what Scripture actually says by interpreting it. And they still come up with different answers. Are you aware that there are more than one viewpoint on how this is all going to work? <laughs> okay. 
So we have to look. Now, some of it, some of it in the New Testament is not prophetic language. What Paul is talking about here, that's not prophetic language. He's just coming straight out and saying it, right? I'm just saying, this is what's going to happen. But is he somewhat vague? Do we understand who the man of lawlessness is? No. Do we understand who the restrainer is? Is he saying, and the restrainer is this? No. So, do, are we left in, in other places where, you know, even we're going to read them in 1 Thessalonians and in, in uh, uh, first, or, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to read those. They're going to be the same. They're clearly stated. It's not using a bunch of symbols. It's not using a, a, a bunch of, uh, of prophetic things, but... It still doesn't give us a definitive answer to what some of these things mean or exactly when they're going to happen. Okay, what's your point, Tim? My point is, if you are ultra-dogmatic about your view of Scripture and you are completely uninterested to listening to other viewpoints or you are somehow Scripture shaming others because they don't have quite the same view that you have, you better be careful because most of this is very difficult to understand. So as we go through this, I'm going to be presenting some things. You are not going to know my view. You can come up and ask me later. But what I want you to know is there are different views, and I'm going to try to present some things in different views so that you will understand what the views are that are out there. <clears throat> and again, if I had the time, I'd go through and say, what do you think is going to happen at the end of the day? And, and, and why do you believe that, that that's the, the case? And what is the only justification that I would be willing to accept, knowing, knowing you knowing who I am? That's right, because I frankly do not care what you think. And you shouldn't care what I think. You should only care what God says. If we're going to go to the truth, we want to know what God says. And guess what? It's not clear. Okay? It's not. Now, do you think God, <clears throat> it's somehow taking him, you know, like, oh, boy, I'm really surprised. These guys are struggling with this. No. Could Paul have said, because he clearly seems to know the answer. And maybe he even taught the answer to the Thessalonians. And he said, look, I told you about the man of lawlessness. Hey, I told you about the restrainer. Why are you still having problems with this? Remember, these things have to happen. I told you that. Why are they struggling then? Right. So, so he, the, we, we can know some things. But so there's, how are we evaluating our own view? And there's going to be some very important aspects, not just to your view of eschatology. And that's the second part of the sermon. But how do we not get deceived about theology in general? Because... Just because there are multiple views of eschatology does not mean that they're all right, and it does not mean that they can't be in error. Some of them, serious error. 
And so in this very difficult to understand subject, with so many different viewpoints, and so many people out there espousing their viewpoint dogmatically, this is it. I've heard them. You know, this means this, and this means this, and it's going to happen this way, this way, this way, this way, this way. And, and I know that this is the truth. How do we evaluate what is true? Okay. So that's, that's kind of a, 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 a preamble to where we're going to go. What is the legitimate reason to hold a particular view of eschatology? Same thing. Because I read it in Scripture, and, and this is what I was led to believe that meant. But I think there's a very, very critical point to this. And this is something, and I will, I will brag upon myself a little bit. Um, you need to have a healthy level of objectivity at all times. And what does that mean? Not bringing to any subject in Scripture some sort of a pre-bias that I'm only really looking for justification for what I already believe. Okay? That's very easy for us to do. So you need to have an objective mind, meaning I am open to what does the Bible really say, what does it really mean, on anything that I'm being taught. So I came here 33 years ago. Having been in every single church, having become a Christian when I was 12 years old, been going to church since I was, could remember, and practically every church that I attended was an Arminian view. Now, the Arminian view believes that God is waiting for us to choose Him and that He gives us some help with the Holy Spirit. But everybody gets the same basic amount of help. But then I choose God, and then once I choose God, he comes in and then inhabits me and starts to change me into uh, the man and the Christian I'm supposed to be. That's a view that's been held in, in different sections of Christianity for a long, long time. And I was absolutely convinced that that was true, that anything else would be unfair and unloving of God, and then I was hearing Ron preaching about something that, that didn't line up with that. And so I went to Ron. I don't know if you remember this, Ron. I went to you and I said, Ron, I don't understand. You know, I believe this. And then in typical Ron fashion, he did not give me an answer. He said, Tim, read this, read this, read this, read this, this, and this. And then come back and tell me what you think it means. And there was, I think you gave me pink, the sovereignty of God to start with, uh, a couple others. And three years later, three years later, I came back and said, I believe very clearly that Scripture says that God chooses us. Okay, so it was very difficult to overcome the bias that I had, but I would have had to have asked myself, why did I believe that Arminianism was true? Well, simply because that's everything I'd ever heard. Did I ever actually check it out? Well, not until Ron challenged me to do it. And so, you know, now, I'm not going to use that one as an example. There might be some of you that are on both sides. We're all saved. If you believe that and you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, no matter which side you're on, you're still saved. And I still love you. 
one of us or both of us are wrong because they, they're not compatible with each other, right? Okay, so we're not going to divide over it. But my point there is you need to be objective when looking at your view of end times. So there's all kinds of these language things out there. Premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, pre-tribulation rapture, post-tribulation rapture, mid-tribulation rapture, partial rapture. Who is the woman? Who's the beast? Who's the dragon? Who's the antichrist? What's this bottomless pit and lake of fire? What are the new heaven and the new earth? Who are the four horsemen of the apocalypse? And all these sevens that are in there, the seven letters, the seven trumpets, the seven signs, the seven bowls. How do I make any sense of that? We're going to talk about that. So let's look. Man, that's a long preamble. Um, let's look. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered together <clears throat> to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, for a letter seeming to be coming from us, or a letter seeming to be coming from us to the effect that the day of the Lord's already come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Okay, so let's take a look at some of these words. Now concerning the coming. The coming would be the returning or the coming near in proximity of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together or being assembled or completing the collection, according to the actual Greek. Assembling something or completing the collection. Gathered together. God is completing the collection of his family. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken. And in the Greek, it would mean easily or quickly agitated or disturbed in your way of thinking. Don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, frightened or troubled by a spirit, a supernatural being, or a spoken word or a letter seemingly coming from us that the day of the Lord has come or already happened. Let no one deceive you, seduce or beguile you in any way. So once again, I agree with you that the purpose of this passage primarily is Paul giving confidence and truth to people who are shaken or alarmed because someone has given them a teaching that is false. And he's saying, look, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived for any reason. False teaching has arisen, a spiritual prophecy, either word of mouth or letters or whatever, and now they need reassurance that they didn't miss out this thing that they've been put their hope in, that they've been sustaining through these trials because we have this hope that in the next life it's going to be so much better and you've promised us all these things. Now, please don't tell me I missed it. We're going to see some other, uh, other kind of things we'll, we'll see in, in, in now in 2 Timothy. A different, this is Paul's letter to Timothy, in saying, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith. So same thing, right? He's saying somebody has come to them, Timothy, where you're preaching, and has told them that the resurrection has already happened, and so therefore they've missed it. And upsetting means to undermine or destabilize or unsettle. Now, it didn't say necessarily that they were saved and then now they're believing this and they're unsaved. 
What it's saying is, look, you can be troubled or unsettled or destabilized and become discouraged when someone is teaching you something that contradicts something that you have counted on as part of your faith. So what were the consequences of the false teaching or the deception that he was talking about? Well, the consequences were they were wavering in their faith. They found some despair or maybe they mistrusted God or they were discouraged because their false hopes. Oh, I was hoping for a resurrection. I was hoping I would be there and yet I'm being told it came already and I missed it. Loss of belief or, or maybe I can't, I can't trust you anymore, Paul, because you, you lied to us. Now, we don't have Paul telling us things face to face. But the consequences for us is the same, isn't it? When we're deceived by someone who's teaching us something that's false, that maybe contradicts things that we believe are true, we're going to have those same consequences. We're going to be alarmed, and we're going to be scared, and we're going to be distressed, and we're going to be disturbed, hopefully, or discouraged, or we lose our belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. Right? If, if, if someone comes up with these false teachings and they say this thing and it starts, well, well man, I, I can't really trust Scripture anymore. Evidently, that's not, Scripture's not true. And so we get away from the very foundation of our truth when we are deceived by false teaching. So this was a false teaching. I'm not exactly sure, and Paul doesn't necessarily, in this particular instance, give us what he believes is the motivation. Maybe these people absolutely just think they're, they're not trying to lie. They just actually believe that it's already happened. I don't know why. But what do we know? Whatever they were saying was not true. Why do we know that? Because Paul says, look, I've already told you. Now, he went back earlier on, we looked at in, in, in Thessalonians, one of the reasons we knew you were God's children and you were chosen is because when we spoke, you accepted it as the very words of God. Okay, now, we have them written down. We've gone through the canonization process. We believe now they are holy, completely inspired, inerrant words of God. They didn't have that. They just had Paul. But, but Paul was saying, look, you accepted my words as the very word of God, so I, I believe you're saved. And so they were taking it as Scripture. They were taking it as inspired. And yet, they were still deceived. So why and how are we deceived? <clears throat> we look at the coming of the day of the Lord, and I read it to you there. It talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 54. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit, inherit, inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory." 
So Paul is giving us a little more of a hint. He's saying, look, whether you're alive or dead, you're going to be changed. When, the, when that day comes, you're going to be changed. You're going to be given this new glorified body. You're going to be resurrected, and you're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. So why were they still shaken and alarmed? They were deceived. And this was the consequence of being deceived. So then Paul goes on to say, don't be deceived in any way. So how can we be deceived? So, so this is going to be as much about just being deceived as it is about this particular deception that's going on in the eschatology of the New Testament church. Okay. How are we being deceived today? Or how can we be deceived or why? We don't know the truth. So if someone came along and taught you something and you just didn't know that there was something in Scripture that contradicted it, you might believe it, right? So sometimes we're deceived because we just don't know. We just don't know what the truth is because no one's told it to us yet. Or we haven't read it in the Bible. Or we, we didn't understand, it was there, but we didn't understand it. So I can be deceived because of ignorance. I've been taught an untruth, false teachers, right? People in Christianity are being deceived and can be deceived when they are taught something that is contrary to God's Word. Do you think that's happening? Absolutely is. Absolutely is. So I want to make sure that you are not getting false teaching. Then the next one, I heard the truth, but I frankly rejected it out of arrogance. Nope, I believe my view, no matter how I got it, is better than yours, and so I don't care what's true. I don't want to hear it. And then fourth, and possibly the most, the most dangerous, and this is something that we find our culture in now, self-deception. I don't care what's true. It doesn't really matter. In fact, I can make up what's true. The only thing is that I sincerely believe it, and if my truth contradicts your truth, so what? Because I want to believe this, and it lines up with what I've already believed and what I want it to say, and so I'm not really interested in finding out what the true spiritual answer is, the true scriptural answer. I already want this, and frankly, that's enough for me. We're going to talk about that a little bit. If there is a great deception coming, which there is, according to Scripture, or a great delusion even coming from God, we're into the place now where truth itself is under attack. It won't necessarily be contradicting something that's true. It'll just be, frankly, I don't care anymore. There's all kinds of things out there. Well, let me ask you this. I should have gone back. Which one of those things do you think was happening in this particular instance with the Thessalonians? Did they just not know the truth? And they were deceived? Possibly. I mean, maybe, maybe not everybody was at the, the same church service where Paul gave them the answers. Or how about, did they hear the truth, but they just rejected it because they thought something else? Or, or was somebody there as a false teacher? What do you think? Yeah, could be any of those, right? We don't know. 
We know for sure somebody was saying it, though. And somebody was coming to them and saying, look, 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 I got this letter from Paul. No, it wasn't from Paul. Or, or a spirit told me, a spirit told me that, and just revealed to me that, that this resurrection had already happened. And it was such a, an amazing emotional experience. It must be true. So we don't know. But if we look at, I'm, I'm going to go through a list, and probably you've heard them all. And these are all things that are happening in Christianity today. Every single one of them. And they're all wrong. The prosperity doctrine. How many of you heard that one? Prosperity doctrine? Yeah, you know. God really just, I mean, his, his main goal for you is just to be healthy and wealthy and, and have a lot of uh, Facebook followers. Yeah. Yeah. Or the sexual identity, gender fluidity, sexuality. Let's just redefine sex the way we want and redefine gender the way we want. And we need to embrace that as Christians because we need to love everyone. How about Christian nationalism? You know what? Christianity, what it really is, it's, it's patriotism. And if you're truly a Christian, um, you need to adhere to a particular candidate and political party. Because that's what God wants. And that's part of who we are. Our identity as a Christian is we're Americans. And, and we're Americans and so we're Americans. We're even a better version of Christians. And we need to combine our Christianity with our politics. And, and we have the same religious zeal for advancing the agenda of a particular candidate or a political party as we do to our allegiance to Christ. Watch the news. It's happening. It is happening. The word of faith movement, if I just believe it enough, I can get anything I want from God. And the reason I don't have it is because, frankly, I just don't have enough faith. So if I can just generate enough faith, boy, I can get God to do whatever I want. Dominionism, which is a long one, but basically it's a particular view where <clears throat> Christians are going to Christianize the world and practice dominion and God is going to create this theological government and if you just train your kids in politics and the law and economics then we will rule the world as the people of God and then that will usher back Jesus that'll that'll allow the world to become what it needs to be so Jesus can return permissive grace doesn't matter how you live if you're saved grace covers it all so don't worry about it don't worry about even knowing doctrine. That's not important. What's really important is to just love Jesus and recognize your under grace and just be thankful for it. And if you stumble a lot or your Christian walk really stinks, ah, don't worry about it. The social justice gospel. What Christianity really means is I need to get involved in social issues because what God really wants me to do is just take care of the problems of this world. New Age spirituality where we combine Eastern mystics and in these emotional and spiritual experiences. Ecumenicalism. Every, every, every religion is good. It's all pathways to God. It's okay. As long as you believe it. You know, yeah, Christianity is a way. It's a great way. But there are other ways. And we just need to bind together on the things we agree on. And let's just ignore those things where maybe we don't agree. 
or universalism where in the end, hey, God's just, God's just really scaring you with hell. He's not really going to send anybody there. In the end, he's actually going to save everybody, but he wants us to act right, so he put the hell thing in there. Or works-based salvation where we need to mix grace with some works because God is only going to save us really if we toe the line, which is what, what the law was all about or woke Christianity, or progressive Christianity, or the emergent church. I'm not going to go into all the details. So do you know what these are? I mean, would you recognize them if you saw them? And, 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 and so we're going to talk, I'm going to talk about this for a second. I understand. Okay. Do you recognize <clears throat> that all of those are false teachings that have huge followings in sections of Christianity? And I'm going to say, give me two hours on any one of those subjects, and I can show you from Scripture where they're wrong. Do I have some sort of divine uh, you know, gift there? No. No. And so, why are people being deceived in Christianity when the truth of Scripture is there for all to see and yet, they still exist. So we go back to the reasons of why I'm being deceived, and it's, it's one of those or all of them. I don't know, because biblical literacy in Christianity is terrible. What a blessing to come here when I came here and serve here and be part of the Machias Christian family under a man who said, it's extremely important to not just know what you believe, but why you believe it. So much so that I'm going to start a school. It's not just enough to know what you believe, because what you believe might be wrong. Why do I believe it? And there's only one answer. Because it's the truth of Scripture. And so how do we do that? Okay, so how to not be deceived. So, so I came here and I thought, wow, what a great thing. Because the... the the reason that people are being deceived is they either don't know, or they know, or they've been taught something false, or they've seen something, but it doesn't line up with what they want to believe, or frankly, they've just given up on truth altogether. So here we are in that place. So how do we not be deceived? And all of these are important. Have a love for the truth. It says right in there, right? I am going to send a delusion, God says, to those of you who do not have a love for the truth. When you come to Christianity, do you absolutely love the truth? And that's what you want. And I have told people time and time again, I am on a journey. I am not there. And I am trying to have, as much as I have learned about Scripture, I am trying to approach every reading of Scripture wanting one thing. God, expose to me the truth of your word. Now, we, we recognize, and we'll talk about this one in a second, that not everything in Scripture is clear, and that there are places where we can have different viewpoints and still be saved. But most of the time, in these things where this deception is happening, that I gave you the list, it's because people do not have a love for the truth. They have a love for what they want. How do I not be deceived? I have a love for the truth. 
pray for the Holy Spirit's guidance that I might understand what Scripture's saying. When you pick up that Bible, you pray to God because he's given you his Holy Spirit. He says in there, and I will expose you to truth. I will lead you into all truth with my Holy Spirit. Learn hermeneutics. Another big fancy Christian theological word. And it basically just means the art and science of interpreting Scripture. Take how to study the Bible in contenders. You really want to know what the Bible says, because as Ron would say, and, and I agree, it only says one thing, it only means one thing. Sometimes we get it wrong. But if I have not even taken the time to learn so that I don't need Tim to tell me the truth of Scripture, I can go to Scripture and find it and check Tim on my own because I have enough love of the truth that I'm willing to take the time to understand it the way God wrote it. And there are rules to help us do that, to understand what it says and what it means in its correct context, in its correct language. If you don't know the rules of hermeneutics, you are relying on someone else to tell you the truth of Scripture and that they're doing it right. And clearly, if you go down that list, there are people out there doing it wrong. Some of them doing it wrong on purpose. Trying to lead people away from the truth. Maintain Scripture as infallible and errant and the final authority for all faith and practice. When you get away from that, where are you? How do some of these errors occur because people say, yeah, the Bible said that, but it's, it's wrong. When, when, when it rails against, you know, God's plan for your sexuality and identity, it doesn't really mean that. It's just we know so much more about people now. That, 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 that was something that just put in there, or that was some guy's opinion. When you get away from the inerrancy of Scripture and the infallibility of it and the fact that it is the final authority, you are going to be led into false teaching because there are wolves out there who are just looking to devour you. Be a Berean. Test the spirits. Check everything against Scripture. Thank you, Bobby, for last week. She came up to me after the, scripture, after the sermon and said, you were quoting this and you quoted the wrong verse. And she said, I was, trying, I was trying to read it. It didn't make sense. Thank you. I did. I read the wrong ad address. All of you should be doing the same. But whatever you hear, whatever you read, whatever you're hearing from another teacher, check it like the Bereans. And strive to have an open mind and a healthy level of objectivity. And this is where, this is one of the most dangerous in our culture right now because truth is no longer important. So, use this illustration, I don't want to run you too long. <clears throat> we talk about, well, you know, what's most important to find out what's, uh, how, how can we spot the counterfeit. How many of you have heard that story? How do, we, how do they teach the treasure agents to spot counterfeit $100 bills? That's right. Always study the original. Okay. So do you need to know all of the fallacies in those things that I, that, I, that I gave you? No. Except, except, what if the time comes when, you, when people say, $100 bill, <clears throat> well, is it counterfeit? I don't care. I don't care. I'm going to go out and spend it. It's going to give me what I want out of it. I'm not, I don't care if it's true or not. And frankly, 
I don't want even you looking at it or trying to question it. I believe it's a $100 bill, so that's all that really matters. And when I go, I'm going to give it to a storekeeper, and if, if he ends up losing 100 bucks, that's too bad for him. It was my truth. In fact, I don't really even care that there is a truth. Here's what I care about, that I'm going to get the $100 worth of groceries I want. It's going to give me what I want out of it. It's going to fulfill some need I have. It ain't going to matter to study the original when you don't really care if it's true or not. So we're, we're living in a culture where, you know what, <clears throat> I don't care what's true. But I have a truth I want to have happen. And when you somehow enter into a conversation where you might not agree with mine, I'm going to cancel you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give you some, I'm going to chastise your character. And I'm going to say anything you say from this point on is meaningless because you don't agree with me. How can we seek and find the truth with that level of objectivity that we no longer care what's true? That we no longer want to listen to anything that contradicts what we think should be true? And I see it on the internet. I see it from Christians all the time who just lambast other people who don't have the same viewpoint. And maybe it's not even about theology. Maybe it's just politics, or maybe it's the economy. And just, you know what? You're an ignorant individual. I don't have to listen to, in fact, nothing you say makes any And I don't care about anything you're talking about because I'm canceling you. When the great delusion comes, I don't believe it's, it's going to be a problem because people think it's a lie. They're just not going to care. We all have to have this level of objectivity to say, you know what, I might be wrong. Or you know what, I need an open mind. How many, I mean, I can just tell you how many different things I thought about Scripture that I just thought were true, that as I studied more and more and taught contenders classes and, and listened to biblical scholars, that you know what, I was wrong. Or when you come to me and say, I have a different viewpoint of something you said, you're, I can guarantee you one thing. I'm going to say, I would love to hear it. Defend it from Scripture. Because guess what? I might be wrong. If you do not have that level of objectivity and that level of grace for other people who have different views, you are going to be misled and led away from the truth. Because what that level of objectivity says, I don't really have a love for the truth. I have a love for what I want the truth to be. We're living in a very dangerous time when truth itself is under attack. And the reason that some of these false teachings are gaining the traction that they're gaining is because people have left their love for the truth and embraced a prideful view of life that just says, I want what I want to be true to be true. Don't be deceived in any way. And the only way to do that is to have a true love for the truth. I think there's probably one more. No, nope, that's probably it. Nope. Know how to separate essentials from areas we can agree to disagree on. Show grace for those who disagree with you.
Okay? We're going to have these conversations about eschatology as we get farther into it. Recognize that, you know what, I may not have all the answers here. And even this, though the teacher I've been listening to is really super dogmatic about this is absolutely the way it is, and there can be no other way, and if you don't believe this way, you're a heretic. Recognize that either one of you or both of you might be wrong. And strive to find out what's true simply by going to the Word of God. But have grace, will you? And have some mercy and have some patience. We can talk about these things, especially eschatology, and agree to disagree in love. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Man, it is the, it is the foundation in which we base things. Um, and it is infallible, and it is inspired, and it is true. And when we deviate from it, it's always leading us to a place you don't want us to be, but also the place that we don't want to be in the end. If we don't have the foundation of your truth, and we've been cut loose from that, and we're drifting, and there's no There's no saying where we may end up. So, Father, anchor us to the truth by giving us a love for the truth and a desire to know what you really say, what it really means in a lifelong quest of open-mindedness, trying to just find out what you have given us in, in in this wonderful thing we call your word. Lord, help us to avoid being deceived. Help us from not just jumping onto something because it's popular or because other people say it or some respected teacher is teaching it, but just go back to your word constantly over and over to find out what you would have us to believe. So we just thank you and praise you for giving us your word, and Lord, just help us from being deceived. In Jesus' name, amen.